0: You're listening to Grind the Arch, oral histories of the St. Louis music scene. I'm Caleb True, and with me is Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode is part two of our interview with Jordan Connect. Let's get right into it.
1: Dad's original studio. Mm-hmm. It was like a million, like well, like it had eight, nine members or something. Oh yeah. And we just we just drove everyone out. I think it's the only time Cicadas ever, quote unquote, played. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just ran people. There's video of it. I think on YouTube of people trying to escape uh, Madras's basement.
2: <laughs> just thinking of joke bands. There's a band that I'm not incredibly proud of that existed for two shows called gi bro
1: (laughs) i was wondering if you're gonna bring this up
2: (laughs) there's there's a lot of things that i see in 17 year old me that i am really grateful are not part of me now it's a really great comparison in that band i imagine that band was this band actually combating homophobia in hardcore and com- combating machoism but the way it manifested was just a macho hardcore band <laughs> with, with homophobic lyrics yeah but totally the yeah. the turning point was that the band broke up because the bass player and the uh drummer ended up making out with each other and I couldn't handle it. I had a whistle and I had a referee shirt and everyone else wore sports uniforms. And when people would fuck up in the middle of songs, I would blow my whistle and make them do laps and pushups and stuff, but really wasn't my conversation to have. And I didn't really understand that at the time.
1: Ben Smith talked about a similar thing with his mega rad youth crew. Yeah. And how they were just trying to combat like the knucklehead. Uh, kind of youth crew shit that they saw at the time, like a lot of violence and kind of became what they hate. And I know I've gone through processes like that as well. Totally. I that Don't I, age well, you know.
2: Yeah. Y was like a thing that when I was like 12, 13 on STL Punk yeah. I was seeing from a distance and being like, that looks fucking wild. Like yeah. they're making their own tanks and crashing them into each other. Like yeah, totally. I didn't really understand what any of it was. Yeah, like, totally. Kill Me Kate was like so scary to me until I like realized later what was happening. But like
0: you realize yeah. later that Kill Me Kate is basically like a watered down like anal cunt, but and except done by teenagers who think it's funny. Yeah, Yeah. like, yeah. I mean, the, some of their, their Adam the Devastator Vacuuming the Pit song is still such a, like, catchy and, like, excellent hardcore song. <laughs> I still think that song is wonderful, but, like, most of their other songs are pretty shitty, and they're, like, they're <laughs> just, like, anal con. It's, like, a minute or less, and they'll have, like, really long, like, joke, like, titles, you know?
2: Doesn't that one go, like, Adam
1: the Devastator Vacuuming the Pit? Yeah. Adam Devastator Vacuuming the Pit! <laughs> yeah. 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 I it's think there's great. a vacuum cleaner sound in there as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah I, I still have that compilation, that aim fire compilation. <laughs> me and Jordan, me and you listen to that driving to Saint Louis at our for our last gig in Saint Louis. Good compilation. Oh, wordy. Yeah. Yeah, I still have it. Yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> I hope I do. Shit. I can picture it, but I hope it's still in my in, among my shit.
1: It's definitely if, on like, my iTunes, so yeah okay that's good yeah. shit like was that,
0: that
2: was, was really a positive thing just to see the compilations like that where yeah. it was like poppy indie music hardcore bands weird like Minutemen sounding bands like all these different styles of music existing and that was I always attribute like first time I really experienced post aesthetic appreciation of music was with Nick Podgurski from Yukon and hmm. and I, I have even created, I feel like it's become like a parable to me of just like bringing up a, a Lucia Tistas when they were like a jazz punk band yeah. and being like, oh, do you like this band? And he was like, no, I don't think this band's good at all. And I was like, what? And he was like, well, they take jazz music and punk music and they put their genres next to each other. And I think that's incredibly uninteresting. <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer that if you're going to take a plus b it doesn't equal a next to b it equals x mm. and so that and like nick has always been a person who like be like hey check out this like duran duran or something and i'd be like duran duran and he'd be like you don't understand you've just been listening and turned off by the aesthetics the substance of it is actually really fucking sick <laughs> yeah but exactly. like thinking back about like that like that like kill me Kate is on the same thing as so many dynamos yeah. and that those <laughs> like kids were cool with it. Yeah. Is actually like, is kind of inspiring because whether I knew it at the time or not, that was a great example of like, I mean in a certain, no, I don't think it's exactly the same. Cause I think that also was just like a scene thing. Yes. It, was, it wasn't, it friends. wasn't really substance over <laughs> style. I think it, but like to just even be like, Oh, look, but like I didn't get the hardcore stuff at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally.
2: But, like, looking back, I'm like, that's at least cool that they could accept or appreciate styles that were so disparate.
0: I'd also think what, what was nice about that, or what, what that compilation reminds me of, is the fact that kind of early on, when the, I think everyone at the same time or, like, close to the same time was realizing there was this insane boom of bands uh, going on, was that there would be shows booked where the genres were just all over the fucking place because mainly that meant that there would be, like... Like, because it didn't matter... First, for one, it didn't matter. And the second reason was that, like, everyone sort of was just there to, like, you're just cultivating a party. And yeah. like, like, I remember, uh, like, a show at uh, the Ethical Society in Ooh. the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, and it was so many dynamos, the graduation, Kami Chung, uh, Dis Orange, and corbeta corbata i think Mm. and it was just like none of those bands really went together that well uh but like at that time for like a minute though they were all sort of friends and cool with it
2: Mm. i haven't thought of disorange in a long time
0: oh me neither (laughs) but uh yeah but like you know those those shows where it was almost like a like like almost like a cherry picking random bands kind of thing like random but not random but definitely having nothing to do with each other in terms of aesthetics is kind of like a nice thing
2: yeah i think that's something i really appreciate about a lot of like a lot of the hip-hop shows i go to Mm -hmm. is like the opener has nothing to do aesthetically with like the person the headliner and i think that's that's really exciting Mm -hmm. to just be like this is being like open your mind to some different shit it can be sometimes disheartening like i had a friend who just went and saw this like bigger like show with a bunch of different folks and he said it that like migos headlined and none of it was like mostly a bunch of younger kids none of the young kids gave a shit because the migos didn't have a song out at that time Hmm. and it was like a year ago and it was like in between culture 2 and like what migos is putting out now and yeah. everyone had forgotten about them because they just didn't have a song up, like that was being repeated. Yeah,
0: That's more about promotion than about like, the band. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yikes.
2: But eventually it was like, I remember when Tragedy came to play in St. Louis, and it was just like, we have to get bands that kind of seem similar. Y'all yeah. remember the band The Beating? I know the, the name. The Beating was one of the scariest bands I've ever seen because the singer, you know, he's a redheaded guy. He was really sweet, really smart. But when he was singing, he had like a full black metal, like, like spiked arm thing, like, like, like one and a half, two inch spikes Uh coming off of it and would just like charge the audience. It was fucking scary.
1: Yeah, that would freak me out.
2: (laughs) That was the the beating was sick. Were they? Yeah.
1: Where are they from? They're a singles band. Oh, wow. Okay. Right on. Yeah
2: um i think they must i think they played with tragedy who i thought was one of the most boring bands i've ever seen in my life (laughs) you know one of the sickest things i've ever seen was the Hugh corrupt shows
0: those were so good
2: yeah i remember one point the singer was on top of one of the speakers like inches away from my head and he had his cock in his hand and he was like pulling it up and was singing like yelling into his cock like a microphone and then i blinked (laughs) and he was like butt naked hanging upside down like spider-man on one of the poles at lamp <laughs> like still singing just being like what the fuck is happening yeah it was it was i don't yeah that was a confusing thing because they, yeah. they seem self-aware yes but also yeah it was like aggressively male and bro yeah. they mm-hmm. made people do the human pyramid for their merch break in the middle of this show <laughs> i remember that
0: yeah uh, yeah their shows are really really fun though
2: oh you know what was a really a big highlight was when Ari Ari would come to play yep
0: yeah totally
2: that was that band was amazing
0: yeah they're really good John Hell would mentioned them too
2: yeah I have thought of them this, one of time. his
0: favorite uh like shows yeah they're really really good I hope uh I mean uh, at some point when I dig out my CDs I will find they're amazing
2: who knows I mean there's a lot of stuff I've been going back and being like yeah I'm not into this anymore mm-hmm yeah and some of it I'm like, damn, this is really amazing. Why don't I listen to music that's this good anymore? Exactly, yeah. That's... The Building Press.
1: Oh yeah, uh, that band was yeah.
2: cool. Building Press is sick. And it's it's actually crazy to like see different waves of stuff Jim, I know you weren't fully sold on them at the time, and I don't really give a shit about their music now. I think they're really sweet guys and all, but seeing Native play, that was some really incredible energy. Yeah, they did a really great job as a band, and they, like, Navies were also amazing. I just I just saw Piss Jeans play a couple months ago, and awesome. that drummer's st- still playing in Piss Jeans. But yeah, Native was, Native was, like, one of the newer, I don't even know, like, like, finger-tappy Guitar mm-hmm. bands, but then there was just like a, this massive onslaught of just shitty screamo bands and finger tapping like m- fake mac- math rock bands yeah. that came with natives that were just horrible. Yeah, yeah. I feel like screamo is like at least hardcore like is all like if you're good or bad at hardcore, there's really not much of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're bad at screamo or you're good at screamo, at least like good screamo can be like really emotive. And- Really, but most Screamo fucking sucks.
1: Also, if you're like in a bad hardcore band, you're only wasting 40 seconds of my time. Amen. With Screamo, you're doing like a three, four sea shanty song, and you're wasting five <laughs> or six minutes of my time at a time. Yeah. You know?
2: <laughs> like, oh my god yeah. there's a what band do we like there's a band that okay i remember now there's a band that we like that would be like we're gonna play this epic song jim I, it was in denver they're like we're gonna play this epic song and it was just like a 10 minute long boring as fuck song oh yeah whatever but i that was, i remember that yeah that was weird to like especially like going back to Lemp after, like going back to Lemp with my band Lovesick from Chicago, uh, like 2000, I lived in Chicago first 2010 to 2011, and I played like six shows with this band Lovesick mm-hmm. with, uh, and the dudes in that band, like I never really been into Screamo, but they were all, they, they loved that band Envy, they like ran a record label that put out a lot of mm-hmm. Screamo stuff, they ran in venues, mm-hmm. but it was with Harrison. Who played in this band Antilles and and plays in this band Cracked Vessel and it was this guy Chris who plays, uh, his band now is really sick like da 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 really cool, just like really bouncy, fast, fast, whatever. I don't even know how to describe that music yeah. anymore. But and it was like full on a screamo band but I like didn't listen to music that sounded like that Mm -hmm. so that was that was sick but they they all had like clout so every time we'd get asked to play shows like before we even recorded something people were like oh you guys are in this band will you play this big show and Harry and Chris were just like fuck them they've never even heard our band they just want us to play because of who we are fuck them and so we like (laughs) never played we like we played the weirdest shows we like played a show at the university of chicago in this like ballroom (laughs) we played at lemp twice i think our last show was at lemp we played in milwaukee at this like thousand person theater to like 15 kids because native dropped off a show (laughs) and so they put us on the show to open it and the sound guy fucking hated us and was like first time loading in guys and then like turned off my snare mic entirely for the entire set um what a cool guy it was uh that was really wild, but uh, yeah, we played five shows. To oh, we played once at Strange Light, and I had diarrhea the entire time. So we like played, and then I literally was on the toilet for
1: the the rest of the entirety of the show. But that was. Jordan now was picturing you like having diarrhea while playing.
0: Yeah, you did just uh, you didn't just wheel the toilet up to the back of the drum kit. <laughs> I mean, just, just wheeled it up I don't know why uh, <laughs> it's like everyone in the bathroom Jordan's got diarrhea gotta set up his drums around the stall it was, it was odd being in St.
2: Louis and touring because there were a lot of other people that toured but then there were also a lot of people we knew like who Muscle Brain knew who didn't tour it was, it was kind of wild to like to actually have more of an audience in Nashville Baltimore in New York than St. Louis at a certain point
1: that I I always bring that up to people we
2: would go to play in nashville a decent amount played in milwaukee a couple times mm-hmm. but we didn't really tour all that much we played chicago twice and then we did two east coast tours that were like relatively small one of the sickest muscle brain shows was in jeremy canapel's basement yeah but that's that but like for sure most people weren't, would not would not book Muscle Brain because they deemed us a Lemp Band. So the only only place that would book us anyway was at Lemp, but also we get slack if we
1: from mark if we were playing other
2: places it just seemed like the most sense
1: to yeah because people would come out in the beginning of us uh playing shows in st louis but we kind of fell into the uh lamp house band category you know that like dancing feet fell into and all that where yeah. it's just like the special quality of seeing this band is just kind of gone i totally get that but yeah, touring... yeah but we were playing like two or three
2: times a week at lamp which or two or three yeah. times a month yeah which is, like, yeah, too I was... much, like
1: It was nuts. But, I mean, at the same time, when we did those last three shows at Lemp, that place was packed. So that was pretty cool. And then also, it's like, you know, playing Nashville and Baltimore, too, it's like we don't play there a few few times a month. That also makes sense that the turnout would be bigger than our average St. Louis show. But it's uh, it's
2: weird to come back to St. Louis distinctly different vibe the last two times we came back because we when we played at the schlafly tap room with skin tags van buren the conformists that shit was packed yeah that was like massive amounts of folks that was really sick and that was also i remember being like holy shit some of the two keys guys are at this show i i like look up to there's like it's it's cool to be like i grew up looking up to the conformists yeah, who are now our peers and our friends and not to say that like i still like i kind of still like oh the two keys guys those guys fucking rip they are so cool i don't know <laughs> i have just never i've never talked to them so like there's still like that kind of i don't really believe in celebrity but they're like i don't think they're the closest thing to celebrity because i like i'm not i'm not sitting there like i don't have any clue i don't even know what their names are or what they're up to but i remember just like growing up being like in media res two keys those bands are the sickest bands and then to just be like oh my god they're at this show now but you might not even be here for us but like i'm stoked on that i was like i know it's kind of silly and petty but i but then like when we came back and we played it uh what was it record or what was the basement oh we, yeah
1: um, it's where cranky yellow used to be <laughs> mm-hmm
2: mm-hmm and it, it was uh, like a pinball spot, and then they had a, a arcade, arcade. That's what it's called.
1: Yeah, there it is.
2: Yeah. But it was, it was all with ours and shit. But like that, like mm. that was like a significantly smaller turnout. There's like probably yeah. like thirty-five people there or something, mm-hmm. which is totally. There's no complaints, but it's just interesting. Also, to be like, sometimes we come back as a touring band, and people care, and sometimes they don't. So yeah. That, that was like the same exact lineup. Really, no one really came out the second time. That was the same lineup.
1: Wow. It was the exact (laughs) same lineup. It was still a really
2: special show. It was such an honor to still get to share the bill with those folks. And everyone who was there was like just a fucking 10. But it is interesting to think about like even coming back as a touring band and having it be a rarity and sometimes it having it feel special and sometimes it being like, Oh, well, we're playing another show to 35 people. 35 people who care is better than 500 people who don't care.
1: I think what's interesting with that show is the last one we played with the smaller turnout, we played a song with very minimalist structure that slowly changed over time, just like one piece. It was about 20 minutes long with guest musicians from St. Louis who did an excellent job. And then Conformist just did the dance Song. oh yeah, that yeah was a for the most.
0: you know
2: i would say i would i we recorded i'd say our set was even closer like 30 minutes oh wow but that that was caleb i don't think we've told you about this but that was a a moment in muscle brain history where um, near the time before i was leaving we really stopped playing songs at our shows mm. and started just playing this one larger anarchic song structure Cool. And we we did it a bunch of different times and it would vary from like 20 minutes long to like 45 minutes long. And it was a way that was like the first time that we started collaborating with people. Yeah. And so we would we like did it on the rooftop of the Contemporary Art Museum in Denver. We did it at like punk venues, but it was all based around these like cycle of riffs that Jim went through. And he had like the set order, but not the set length of how long each lasted or like the expression of each riff yeah and then my rule was that my drum rhythm didn't change for the entire time but the voicing and the way that i navigated the drum set would change but Hmm. like the actual rhythm stayed the exact same for the entirety and then everyone else got to improvise around us it was really cool but yeah at that show like we did that with pat boland on auxiliary percussion mabel on saxophone and Dottie on synthesizer sick and it was super trippy and really cool and then yeah the conformist just did this one note song that goes dance 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 yeah. dance da- for like 25 minutes and that was like so like half of the show was just one thing <laughs> half
0: of the entire show <laughs> that's super cool
2: <laughs> is the last show that we played the 13 hour show
1: yeah i i said 14 hours it might be 14 Uh, i think it extended yeah Yeah,
2: but we yeah we uh that was like the last show that muscle brain has played was like 13 or 14 hours long
0: where where'd you guys perform it
2: at the at leon gallery in denver as like a celebration for our 13 or 14 year anniversary
0: muscle brain's 13 or 14 year anniversary
2: yeah that's amazing yeah yeah. What's well, crazy to think, like Jim, were you there when at the ground floor in uh, across the river in in Belleville? We had to sneak in to see the Conformist ten year anniversary.
1: Oh yeah, I was there. And yeah. they
2: ate cake on stage. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> they like snuck. Yep. I don't know if they snuck you, but they snuck me in the back because I wasn't allowed in.
1: Uh, I don't. I didn't get snuck in. I was. It must have been like an eighteen and up show. Must be yeah. But they like. They just gave me some equipment
2: that, that they weren't even using in their set to carry in the back door. <laughs>
1: That's awesome. Nice.
2: That was yeah. They the Conformists have always been. They've always been so intimidating, and they've always been so fucking supportive and so sweet. And it's been incredible the entire time, with all of the shit talking, with all of like yeah. the weird cattiness. Totally. The Conformists have always yeah. They've just been the most supportive, the kindest. They've always kept their hands the cleanest. They're like. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They've just Just been really Fucking upstanding And it's It's really great to see them Always changing and evolving And always changing and evolving As people Yeah And I know that all over they have the aura of being just the most intimidating motherfuckers. And like our friend Chaz in Columbia, Missouri was saying that they were there to play the Columbia, Missouri Experimental Music Festival and everyone was scared of them. (laughs) And then Chaz went up to Pat Boland and was like, hey, Jordan and Jim say what's up. And Pat just like lit up. And then all of the conformists were so nice to (laughs) Chaz. It was just like... (laughs) But I think they're probably just sometimes awkward dudes. Yeah. But also they just... They make some of the most confrontational music. So it's like very fair to assume that they are so scary. Deep shout out to the conformists for just like always being so kind and so above all the bullshit
1: just really amazing upstanding people
0: that's the formula for longevity
1: yeah and everyone's brought them up with similar reverence uh in our interviews they're the shit amazing band and also yeah very intimidating i was telling i think john i've known mike for a long time now uh and even like i was nervous as hell interviewing him for this yeah so funny still you know i was like oh man is he gonna think i'm lame (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I I, can't wait to hear his because his is probably the most positive depiction of what was going on in St. Louis too. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he also just was kind of, like I never saw him at all the shitty house parties and, and all. He, they just, I feel like they always were just kind of about their shit. They're always yeah. about their music. They just like were always on their own trajectory, just barreling through time and space. Yeah. Totally radicalizing how music is conceptualized and just like not giving a shit about where they're not supposed to play or like they just kind of I feel like they always just did an amazing job of deflecting all
1: of the drama and definitely also... it's like they had one foot in one foot out, yeah, you know, just like it seems like they were really good at moderation in regards to like not playing too many shows, not really worrying about audience size. I don't know. They're just like, they, they towed the lines really well and that probably kept them out of the drama too. And I think they
0: they were already adults, like actual adults when we were like definitely not adults yet. Um, And so I think part of it was, I imagine back in the day in the like late nineties when they were our age, they probably had some, a lot of shit talking and scene bullshit that was like pre us so we just don't you know they they were well beyond that by the time we we rolled around
1: totally um, also they're prank masters so like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe they were able to exercise some of those demons through their, their their prank wars <laughs> did,
2: did they talk about one, one thing that oh, sticks yeah. with me, the, they talked about the fish in the van and shit. Hell, yeah,
1: hell, but yeah. Let, tell your version of
2: it. Well, I mean, it's just, it's fucking incredible. I, I feel like the lore around that band, so the, the way I know this story, and Jim, I realized recently you were telling a story about Rusty and all of the details changed from what I remembered, which oh, I thought wow. was really, I thought it was really amazing. All of a sudden he had a table where he used to be on the ground. It was like, it was oh, really wow. cool. It was really amazing just to like, to be like, did my memory change? Did your memory change? Did you remember something? Did you conflate something? And so like, as I'm telling this, I'm also just thinking about like the way that we change reality around us by misremembering or re-remembering or like the details we pick up and forget and then all, it's just so fascinating. So what I remember is Conformis and Corbeta Corbata were on tour together at one point they like stopped at a prank store or like a sex shop and got all these fucking sex stickers and one of them had a rental van and that van got like the undercarriage of the car got covered in all these sex stickers and stuff and then at some point there's like a stink bomb or something maybe not but then what happened oh at one point one of them rammed the rental car with their van as like a prank. And then uh, it culminated with conformist learning Corbeta Corbata songs because I think it would be much harder for Corbeta Corbata to learn the conformist yes. songs. Yeah. So I, let's say it was conformist learning Corbeta Corbata songs and playing their set at the show before Corbeta Corbata could play their set. <laughs> yeah. And then, it's, uh, uh, But then what happened was they were like, whoever still owns... Owned the van the other one had been returned or whatever while the band was playing their set Who whichever band it was I can't remember at this point the other band went and they broke into that band's van and they hid Three fish in the van two in the car, but one in like the air duct or something in the hood So they're like (laughs) we hid two fish in your van motherfuckers, but they didn't mention the one that was like in the AC and and then they took a big ass chain and they padlocked the van shut with a big chain and then when the band was loading out they stood there and they threw the key into the fucking gutter in front of the band they were like fuck you you got two fish in your van idiots but they like they like tricked them because they just they threw them off that there was actually the Third fish that they hadn't mentioned, <laughs> and for like months they were just driving around with this fishy ass band, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. they couldn't figure out where the smell was coming from. Is that close
0: to the
1: truth? Yes. Or close, dude? It's super close. <laughs> so um, I felt bad when I asked Mike about it because I had already talked to Caleb and said the story similarly to the way you said it. <laughs> well, it turns out the conformist learning the Corbeta Corbata thing never happened isn't that right
0: caleb so um i mean after we talked to uh sean there was something like that because like ben remembered something like that happening at manja and i think sean who was in the conformist at the time Yowie sean uh he also remembers something like that happening and i think he also remembered it happening at manja but the Yowie actually learned an entire conformist set and they punked the conformists in this way with five mics who had, like, Mike's tattoos done on Sharpie on their chests. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and, and right before the lyrics and the, i think this was at the creepy call right before the lyrics started that like one of their airsats mics would like rip his shirt off jump up on stage and do his best mic impersonation oh my god and then and then so then they played an entire set right before the conformist and then they left right at like and the conformist had to go on and figure do something <laughs> They probably played
1: dance exactly yeah
0: <laughs> You always pull that one out of the hopper yeah yeah that's so
2: fucking <laughs> sick leave it to yaoi to be the only band to yes. out weird the conformists yep yep
0: like we were talking with with ben and we're like yaoi can punk the conformists by learning all their songs the conformists can punk uh Corbeta, corbata which they also did where like chum is in the band and they basically played "Corbata corbata songs quote with one hand behind their back and then uh, Ben was like, Yeah, no, it's not gonna go the other way. Like we just we just can't do it. We don't have the technicians of, of that
2: camera. <laughs> That's um, amazing, so they did actually punk Corbeto Crobato just not at that time.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it might have it happened at Manja, but yeah, I mean, they're, neither gave details that were specific. It seems like it happened at Manja, and it did happen, but it might not have been an entire set. We're, yeah. We
1: might just have to have one episode where we get everyone who uh, <laughs> somewhat referenced or has experienced the prank war in some way comes together, sits down, and talks about it. and yeah. Gets all the details fleshed out. We totally. could, um,
0: yeah, we could like mix a like prank special mm-hmm. and yeah. just be like, this is the prank round table and this is what everyone has said about it. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then we can put it out on cassette.
0: <laughs> yeah. Put it I out on fish. On fish. On
1: fish.
0: <laughs> oh, this is, you know, just a trout. We buy a bunch of trout and we like put
1: it in there. <laughs> There's a download code on the fish's belly. You gotta, we got to gotta dissect
0: you... the fish to get the download <laughs> code yeah Dummy. there's just a
2: slimy ass usb stick in there <laughs>
0: it's disgusting We're trying to clean it real carefully yeah so with a little it. brush
2: <laughs> okay so this reminds me of another story that i'm curious i feel like different people are going to have and there's a lot of people who weren't there, but there are a lot of people who were there. Last official show... I think I played one other show with Godfather with Brain Handle or something before, like at the Skullfuckery. But for the last official show that I played with Godfather, Jake Jones was in on it with me, but I made a fake... He designed a fake cover for a fake Godfather record called Godfather is Full of baloney. Yes. <laughs> and at this show, I before the show, I went and I bought like 50 circles of baloney. <laughs> and then I used a big CD spindle to cut holes out of the center mm. of all the baloney, and then we put Jake's CD cover in a little plastic sleeve with the baloney, and we <laughs> sold out of the CD before we played. <laughs> but then people found out that Godfroder full of Godfroder is full of baloney. Was actually just baloney in a CD sleeve, <laughs> and the slaughterhouse was just covered in baloney. People were just throwing baloney everywhere. <laughs> there weren't even that many people at the show. But then after the show, we used the money to half buy stuff, like quesadilla stuff. We didn't give anyone a refund. People were mad. They're like, I want my dollar back. And I was just like, No, I'm not in the band anymore. I don't give a shit. Thinking also about Manja and Seabees and all this stuff. Being one of the youngest people I knew for a while. Yeah. In in the scene, I didn't really drink. I didn't definitely didn't drink at Lamp and I really wasn't a drinker much. But I like go to Chris Muthers grandma's house to see Cave play, and like drink two beers. Or, like, we'd go to the uh, Vietnamese bar and, like, drink beers after shows. Mm -hmm. And I, like, would drink, like, one beer in the three hours I was there. I'd, like, sip the beer for three hours. But it was really interesting that, like, of every single bar in St. Louis, the only place that I couldn't get into was CBGB's because, like, a 16-year-old got alcohol poisoning and had to get her stomach pumped. And so that was the only. Glenn from Adversary Workers did the door, and he was really, really aggressive about IDing. And that was the only place in all of St. Louis that I could not drink when I was 17. I would never go out drinking. I like I probably I would say I probably didn't get even tipsy till I was like 23 or some shit. Like maybe maybe that's an exaggeration, but like I just never was a drinker. But I would, like, go have a beer, like, and sit with Matt Dill outside the Vietnamese bar yeah. till, like, 2 a.m. and drink one or two beers over the course of, like, three hours. And, like, do you mean that, the, that's just, like, another...
0: Do you mean the Jade Room?
2: The Jade Room, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, like Mekong. Basically Mekong after dark kind of thing.
2: Yeah, Mekong. Yeah, we like go either upstairs the they uh the guys from baltimore in new york called it the Winamp bar because they <laughs> just had all those Winamp visualizers up there yeah yeah but like yeah. they're that like like you go and like josh levi would be like djing yeah I, the first time i ever went to the jade room i remember going upstairs and someone had thrown up on the dance floor which is like a eight by eight foot pad of hardwood floor and like jeremy is pogoing and high kicking and everyone's so drunk they don't realize they're just stamping around in a bunch of throw up yeah weird times but that i mean that was like that's also a weird part of growing up I, i wonder if i'll be i mean there's gotta be other like martin from from uh lumpy and the dumpers came around after me and he was like one of the young people but other than me the only other person i knew like younger than me was little kevin from godfather and it's so it's like weird to look back and be like oh yeah i was one of the youngest people also there is a and there there were a lot more young people like young little curtis and one person i hope that people remember and it, it really has broken my heart to know that he passed away was jeff worm jeff wilson mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. jeff worm was i have i like cherish i have this uh original drawing from one of his saps that's framed But Jeff was so giving to everyone and so universally loving. And Jeff and Sarah were always giving homes to people who um, were without home. They were always just like cultivating people, meeting each other. Jeff was just so smiley. At one point he gave me this beautiful little black, all black zine that was just all about like darkness inside your heart It was like a bunch of lyrics from bands and it was just so beautiful. I still have that. It's got like a black foam cover. Um, but Jeff, Jeff was, he was always videotaping and documenting stuff. He kind of, he moved between worlds. He just was so fucking sweet and he must've been like 30 when I was like 15 and I would like go chill with him at his house. Yeah. Yeah, and he just like he was a really great older person role model who like wasn't a wild partier yeah he just like was just really loving really calm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and the way i found out that he passed out was like through instagram which is Eesh. just a fucking shame but
0: do you know how he died do you know what happened
2: i don't know the details yeah um Did I say passed out or did I say passed away
0: that's I mean I I know what you meant um yeah but
2: but I feel like he's a really integral part of of St. Louis punk music that should always definitely be memorialized and remembered Mm -hmm. he is a really incredible dude yeah
0: cool yeah
1: yeah I remember I don't think I ever met him which is you know bummer
0: yeah I, I think I only ever met him at LEP a couple times but he's very nice
1: yeah he's
2: he's was, he was great he at one point there's a video that some reason got taken down i think he might have been like revising his uh youtube or something but he had a video from a puppet show playing from that halloween show at lump Honestly. and it was totally bonkers i don't know how to go back and find shit like that but yeah yeah and also like for the record Mark Sarge is an incredible dude, and I wouldn't be here without him. That's, I feel like, another part of Singulus history. And there, I think there's going to be a lot of people who have negative things to say about Mark, and everyone has different opinions, and yeah. everyone has totally different experiences. But at the end of the day, like I wouldn't be doing the cool shit that I'm doing in my life if it wasn't for Mark.
0: Yeah, totally.
2: So, yeah. Yeah, if, if, I know. I feel agree. the same it's, way.
0: Yeah, agreed. Totally. If
2: it's about holding history, like, definitely Mark is an integral part of we, uh, St. Louis music.
0: I, I hope we can get a hold of him, and I hope we can interview him at some point. Um, it's interesting that a lot of people have just kind of avoided him, avoided talking about him so far. I'd say a yeah. lot. I mean, we haven't interviewed a lot of people, but, like, uh, like Ben didn't talk about him that much. No one said really bad things. they just said, like, people have opinions about him, blah, blah, blah. But... um
1: I mean, people have opinions, John said glowing also... things about the limp
0: say, say that again
1: oh, said, John. uh John John uh, yeah John had a lot of good things he to say did. about this yes. time at the limp. yeah um
0: without without talking about mark, really, um yeah, but he didn't, yeah, he just said like people have their opinions or whatever, but yeah, the limp right, was right. yeah, I think I don't think anyone can disagree that that's like the what he did which with you can't you can't say the limp there is a limp without mark like that was a lot of like angry young people's, like, dream or whatever, but, like, you can't have the two things separate. Yeah. The Lemp was Mark, and Mark was the Lemp, so. Totally.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yep, I mean, I've only, I've been, like, culturally, like, just relatively disappointed ever since. (laughs) And that's (laughs) because the bar was way high way too high that like not even grad school nothing nothing can achieve it
2: oh yeah it's, it's it is wild to go into the world and to just be like the wildest shit i've experienced in terms of like radical art making yeah not always i feel like there's a lot more happening that i'm ex- i mean but like so, so much maybe not the rep ra- but like so much radical stuff i experienced between the ages of 15 and 19 yeah. at Lemp that yeah. like people in grad school have never heard of
0: yeah yeah it's really sad you know, they think they, they really think they're on the cutting edge of things but like and if it didn't happen at Lemp it happened in St. Louis like I'm thinking of just like conformist or yaoi shows that I saw uh not at the Lemp because I don't know if I ever saw yaoi at the Lemp to be honest
2: I'm trying to think if I've ever actually seen Yowie.
0: I think Yowie may have played at the Limp one time, and I think that was somewhere around 2010, or maybe like, somewhere when like between when they had broken up and come back, and like it just so happened that one of their comeback shows was at Limp. But I might oh, yeah. be making that up. I'm not even sure.
2: But I saw Yowie at the Firebird.
0: Where That sounds more yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: After they got my back first together, time
1: seeing them. Yeah. And I saw. And them, yeah, good.
2: This may be a secret, but weren't you practicing
0: with them for a while? Yeah, no, I practiced with them for like, uh, at least three months. It was like something between, I just say it was approximately a season. I remember it being winter when we started and almost summer when we ended. Yeah. And and like, yeah, I learned all of cryptology After talking with Sean about what what was really, truly required to like, for them to make the music they made, um, yeah, I, yeah, it wasn't gonna last, and I, I like ducked myself out of it like well before it would have been like even considered that I could be their guitar player. Word, Cause that's like, sick though. It's twenty hours a week yeah Uh, it's 10 hours a week of in-person practice and another 10 hours of like evaluation and like recording and like talking about recordings and stuff
2: holy shit that's amazing i was just like
0: i want to be in that band i'm i'm great i can i'm amazing but i did learn a lot so that's nice
2: that's that's fucking crazy i'm just looking up yaoi right now you know another i don't know if we ever had a name but that band that you and james and i were doing that we were practicing at your house for a while.
0: Oh, fuck yeah, yeah. I Am the Pirate Signal. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, that song rules. I mean, I still have a bunch of those raw recordings, but... Oh, really? Yeah, they're fun. I mean, they're not very good, but they're really fun. Yeah. Those riffs are really good.
2: Yeah, I fucking... I. I, I know this about myself as a drummer when I am thinking about drums I fucking suck at drums <laughs> and I think I was thinking a lot about drums in that period I mean in, it's, just in that band because I mean like that that was I feel like that was kind of like a I'm, it was just a string of numbers
0: yeah totally yeah and that's like yaoi like super super watered down totally (laughs) Um, but I I don't know I'm proud of the riffs we came up with like I sort of that was a continuation of a band I tried to make happen with James for so long
2: I'm really timid about starting bands with people Mm -hmm. and I feel like whenever I move to somewhere it takes me a while to like to get up the courage to like kind of enter into the music world again so I've only I've lived here for a year and a half I've only played two shows and that's with uh, with my band Lake Mary with Chaz Primick. And that band's based in Columbia, Missouri. So it's not even based here, but we played um, once at the Empty Bottle with uh, Matthew Christensen and Bill McKay in our band. Mm-hmm. And then we played once at the hideout, Just Chaz and Me. I play music constantly by myself. I made this little uh, like little jungle kit with an 18-inch kick drum. And lately, what I've been doing is I've been modifying record players and adding extra needles to them Hmm. and extra styluses but without tone arms so that they're dangling from wires suspended by alligator clips so i can control locked grooves but the locked grooves because they are free on wires can sometimes span like two or three grooves where other locked grooves are only one Hmm and so it becomes really anarchic and then I've been doing like different mixes of different points on the same record with multiple lock grooves but then I've been also doing mixes with multiple records and finding the synchronicities of when records that are in different BPMs are being played over each other Hmm. and so I've been doing like experimental DJ sets that way but then I've been improvising drums on top of the records and most recently I've finally, I've just been, I don't want to jinx it by talking too much about it, but I've been recording my first solo record in a in a long time. So I've been working with 45 so that I can play them slow down because I really like like the chopped and screwed vibe, but I also like that a lot of the details become more apparent when things are played slower. Yeah. I also, I like the disassociative nature of it. Um, and so I've been playing Be Thankful for What You've Got by William Devon. And I have like a 50 minute improvisation with multiple needles on that record and I've been going and excavating like all of the different minutes and creating different compositions around that in response. I feel like I want to give credit and money to William Devon and to his band since I'm using their music if I'm going to be using his music so I have to figure out how to clear the samples with him if I end up wanting to put it out. Mm but for multiple reasons a because there's not going to be any money coming in i don't know if i can clear the samples because i couldn't offer them any money but what what i've done is i've actually i've taken away the samples and been listening to everything without the architecture that held it up and it's actually has really like it turns out i've made really wildly beautiful compositions that exist without the samples Hmm. and so um i've been constructing this album that way by like the samples of all of the locked grooves in real time are like foam underneath everything and then i've been building up everything on top of the foam and then like burning away the foam nice. so that everything else is floating in space and so i've been i've been working on that like a couple like on average like three to three to seven hours a day that's sick um for the past couple it's wild i at least a month just and that's that's been a majority of the music making i've been doing and i feel like i finally i've been doing a lot of sampling of my own stuff i've been sampling my friend uh chris taylor who plays in this band body meat he put out this free pack of samples on he's on like the cover of the ableton website right now Mm -hmm. i'm uncomfortably a mega fan of chris which i uncomfortably i mean like i probably make chris uncomfortable by like how much (laughs) of i'm a a (laughs) mega fan of of body meat Mm -hmm. and it's like it's like, I also realize I'm being uncomfortable where I'm like, Chris, you're a genius. Oh my god, I love your music. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. But like, I'm just a mega fan of Chris's music. And so I, like, um, because he put out this free sample pack, like we've been talking about trading samples, but I know he's really busy. So I just downloaded the free sample pack and have been manipulating his samples. Um, and I've also been sending out sections to different people so to collaborate so that then I can cut up all of their ideas for those sections and make new compositions out of it so it's just been a really freeing way to go about like recontextualizing pre-existing stuff yeah it's um that's what's up in Chicago with the music I've been doing uh Jim and I have the Muscle Brain record that we recorded like a year and a half two years ago um and I've been still continuing to work with my dad to mix it. We finally fixed a bug in his mixing board. Um, so that's actually still been happening. Jim, we haven't really talked about that much at all, but like that's yeah. still been, still been in process. Cool. Do,
0: um, do you guys, uh, so you, you told me that you uh, record, you do a lot of improvising in your later sets, but um, so is this new album though, is it uh, improvised longer works or is it song structures? Oh, we get songs.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, cool. I mean, as always, I think one part that's always been part of Muscle Brain is that we always compose with sections mm-hmm. that are open for improvisation. Nice. Okay. And in the, in the more recent times, like, there's a whole section of a song that was composed through improvisation at the show we played at Schlafly Taff Room. It was a part of the song that had never existed that just appeared out of nowhere while we were playing that then we solidified into the part of the song. Um, but there's a lot, there's a lot of parts of the record where it's just like, we know that there's a section where we are improvising and we don't know how long it's going to be or anything. We
1: just let it go. Yeah. That's in the middle of the song. Nice. What were where you going to say, Jim? Oh yeah. I was just going to say, I think improvisation and groove both have really become a big part of muscle brain over the past over our you know our time here in Denver and still oh uh, definitely
2: I, I think that's the majority of how almost I, I feel like it used to be that you e- Jim would show up with riffs and we'd kind of when we'd improvise around the pre-existing riffs and that's how we'd come up with the songs and I think lately we have figured out that improvisation is a vocabulary that we use to communicate with each other and that's been the main form of of composition but also of just like working out and communicating with each other like times in the past where like we'd be really mad at each other and want to like fight each other now it's like we're really mad at each other and we play music about it and we <laughs> and we and we figure that out that totally, way. and then and that gives us space to cool off, but also like to negotiate more abstract interactions before we maybe sit down and talk about it. I would agree. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's been really cool. But like the way the way that we write music lately, and Jim, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn, is that like we just get together and just start playing, and we record, and then we'll go back and listen and be like, this is worth keeping, or like I really liked this part. Oh, I remember this thing, what did we have? And like it's really been valuable to have a recorder going so that we can reference stuff, but just let things flow and and like and get into like ease into like sometimes it's just like dropping straight into be like, yeah, I have no barriers and sometimes it's like easing into breaking down the barriers where we're just like just in like a flow state. Yeah. But I feel like that's how the majority of our music for the last like five years has been written.
1: Sweet. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and the, it, oh sorry. Oh yeah, I I I just say Muscle Brain's the only band that I've been a part of that like, I mean at this point and like you said for the past five years neither of us just show up with like hey I got this idea if that hasn't happened in a long time we just show up and we we just start making shit. Sweet yeah, that's awesome. And th- I
2: I it's it's interesting because it, in contemporary music. Our, our friend Nate Wheeler did his like uh, master's uh, thesis all about this, that, that in the past improvisation was considered a legitimate mode of composition. Hmm. And more recently in music history, it has been written out. Um, but I think that it functions so much as a mode of composition for us where we are composing some of our best ideas that then we go back and we often if the process of actually making the song then is like hours and hours and days and months of revision and of whittling down and of like reduction out of like these massive blocks of ideas i mean we're writing like 10 minute songs yeah Mm -hmm. and it's not on purpose and it's often not without it's like without realizing and our friend Amos in Denver, who's a really incredible musician, would often be like, I just can't comprehend how you write songs that long. And it would Just be like, well shit, you should have heard it before we like pared it down. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. <laughs>
0: So that was part two of our interview with Jordan Connect. I want to thank Jordan and Muscle Brain for letting us use their music in this podcast. For more information, go to JordanConnect.com. To listen to more of Muscle Brain, go to musclebrain.bandcamp.com. You have been listening to Grind the Arch Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene, hosted by Caleb True and Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode has been mixed by me, Caleb True. The Grind the Arch logo was designed by Julia Hahn. To check out more episodes, visit anchor.fm grindthearch. If you have questions or comments, we can be reached at grindthearch at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.